Suggestions for Teachers from the Tree Dwellers by Catherine Elizabeth Dopp, Part 2. Recorded for LibriVox.org. Supplementary Facts The child asks many questions, some of which are difficult to answer, since what has been ascertained regarding the period during which the tree dwellers lived is not contained in books that are generally available. It has seemed best to present at this time such summarized statements as will furnish the teacher with the facts that she may need. Animal Life Extinct Species Among the animals of the mid-Pleistocene period that have since become extinct were the Irish deer, the big-nosed, the small-nosed, and the woolly rhinoceros, the mammoth, the cave bear, and a saber-toothed felis, Macarodus latidens, sometimes though incorrectly referred to as the cave tiger. The rhinoceros. The big-nosed and the small-nosed rhinoceros came to western Europe from the south. The former came the earlier, and stayed until the late Pleistocene period, when the later cavemen hunted the reindeer. During this period it became extinct. As the climate became severe, both species may have migrated south each winter. It would have been possible, however, for them to remain, for they were well adapted to a cold climate. It is interesting to know that many of our popular tales of dragons originated in connection with the discoveries of the huge bones of these creatures, which could be accounted for in no other way. Our information regarding these creatures is exceedingly meagre. They are characterized as dull-witted creatures with dim eyesight, exceedingly impulsive and dangerous. They rarely attacked other animals, for they lived upon vegetable food, but if they were molested they were formidable creatures. At such times they would root up young trees with their tusks, and pierce and rend the bodies of their most powerful assailants. A full-grown rhinoceros was seldom attacked by even a mammoth or the saber-toothed felis. Its thick skin served as an impervious shield, protecting it from the most powerful blows of the fiercest animals. It is quite probable that packs of hyenas and wolves learned to take advantage of precipices, and that they frightened the rhinoceros over the brink, thus disabling him so that he became an easy prey. The woolly rhinoceros came down from the north during mid-Pleistocene times, and was protected from the cold by a fine inner coat which resembled wool, and a coarse hairy outer coat. This species was abundant until the close of the Pleistocene period, when it became extinct. What is stated above with reference to the characteristics of the rhinoceros applies equally well to this species. Very little has been written concerning these extinct species that is satisfactory for the teacher's use. Brief accounts can be found in Hutchinson's Extinct Monsters, page 225, in Stanley Waterloo's The Story of Ab, page 71, and in an article by E. D. Cope on Extinct American Rhinoceroses in The American Naturalist, volume 13, page 771a. The Mammoth Professor Owen, the eminent paleontologist, writes, The mammoth is better known than most extinct mammals by reason of the discovery of an entire specimen preserved in the frozen soil of a cliff at the mouth of the river Lena in Siberia. The skin was clothed with a reddish wool and with long black hairs. It is now preserved at St. Petersburg, together with the skeleton. The mammoth was not so large as it has sometimes been pictured. The largest was not more than thirteen feet high, and many were not higher than nine or ten feet. Its body was heavier than that of the elephant, and its legs were shorter. It had enormous tusks, which it is thought were sometimes used as crowbars in rooting up young trees in order to get the branches for food. It is thought that several mammoths cooperated in this work. Professor Owen writes, The tusks of the extinct Elephus primogenius, or mammoth, have a bolder and more extensive curvature than those of the Elephus indicus. Some have been found which describe a circle, 
but the curve being oblique, they thus clear the head, and point outward, downward, and backward. The numerous fossil tusks of the mammoth which have been discovered and recorded may be ranged under two averages of size, the larger ones at nine feet and a half, the smaller at five feet and a half in length. The writer has elsewhere assigned reasons for the probability of the latter belonging to the female mammoth, which must accordingly have differed from the existing elephant of India, and have more resembled that of Africa in the development of her tusks, yet manifesting an intermediate character of smaller size. Of the tusks assigned to the male mammoth, one from the newer tertiary deposits in Essex measured nine feet ten inches in length, and two feet five inches in circumference at its thickest part. Mammoth tusks are collected in Siberia as an article of commerce. The ivory is little altered. From the examination of the contents of the stomach of a mammoth that was found frozen in a marsh, it has been proved that the mammoth ate not only the buds, cones, and tender branches of trees, but the wood itself. Professor Owen shows that the mammoth was independent of the seasons on account of being able to live upon such a diet. The teeth of the mammoth, one of which weighs seventeen pounds, were well adapted to grinding food that was hard and tough. THE CAVE BEAR The cave bear differed from the grizzly of today chiefly in its greater size and strength. An interesting story of the cave bear is found in Stanley Waterloo's The Story of Ab, Chapter 22. Ernest Thompson Seton's Biography of a Grizzly in the Century Magazine, Volume 59, pages 27 through 40, will be interesting to read in this connection. The Sabertooth Felis, Macarotus latidens. This animal has usually been spoken of as the cave tiger, but Professor W. Boyd Dawkins has shown that it was no more closely allied to the tigers than to other felines, and that the very tempting name of Sabertooth tiger must therefore be given up as implying a relationship that does not exist. It differs from the genus Felis in the enormous development of the serrated upper canines, as well as the presence of a third lobe on the sectorial edge of the upper premolar. It was a peculiarly destructive animal, its teeth being described as uniting the power of a saw with that of a knife. The canine tooth of this animal is the most perfect instrument for piercing and dividing flesh known. It belonged to the southern group of Amalia, and as the winters became cold, it probably migrated each fall. Although it was never abundant, it was much feared. Remains of similar animals have been found in the United States, mingled with the bones of the mammoth. Living Species Of the living species, there were present in mid-Pleistocene times the brown bear, the grizzly bear, the wolf, the fox, the stag, the roe, the urus or the wild ox, the oryx or the European bison, the hippopotamus, the horse, the wild boar, the beaver, the water rat, the lion, sometimes spoken of as the cave lion, and being the same species as the Felis Leo of today, the lynx, the panther or leopard, the wild cat, the spotted hyena, the otter, the musk-sheep, and the marmot. No animal was domesticated at this time. The urus. The urus, which is the representative of the wild cattle of this period, is the ancestor of our long-horned cattle, and should be distinguished from the short-horned cattle that appear in Western Europe in the prehistoric period in a domesticated state. The wild bulls were formidable antagonists when enraged. It is thought by some that the Chillingham cattle are descendants of the urus. The color of the urus is not known. Some think that it was white, but others doubt that the species would have been able to survive with such a conspicuous covering. On account of their fear of the beasts of prey, the wild cattle probably kept under the cover of trees during the day, and went out to the grassy uplands only when darkness came on. 
The feeding grounds of the grass-eating animals determined the haunts of the beasts of prey. When wild cattle are attacked, the larger animals in the herd surround the younger and weaker, so as to present a wall of horns to the assailant. This habit is not peculiar to wild cattle, but is quite characteristic of all grass-eating animals. The Wild Horse The steps in the evolution of the horse are stated so fully in the text that it is not necessary to repeat them here. Almost any good text in geology gives the same facts. It should be remembered that horses with more than one toe on each foot did not live when the tree-dwellers did, but during earlier periods. The teacher who wishes to read further regarding the wild horse will find materials in the Century Dictionary under Horse, in Chambers' Encyclopedia, in H. N. Hutchinson's Creatures of Other Days, in N. S. Shaler's Domesticated Animals, and in McClure's Magazine, Volume 15, page 512. THE MUSK SHEEP the appearance of the musk-sheep in Western Europe during the mid-Pleistocene period marked the change that was beginning to take place in the climate. As the climate increased in severity, all the Arctic species came down from the north and occupied the land during the late Pleistocene period. The musk-sheep is the most Arctic in its habits of any of the herbivores, and at the present time is restricted to the high latitudes of North America. It thrives in desolate, treeless, barren grounds, not even being driven from its haunts by the extremest cold. It is closely allied to the species which is the parent of our domestic sheep, although that species did not appear in Western Europe until prehistoric times. The musk sheep goes in herds of from twenty to thirty individuals, and when alarmed, the animals huddle together like frightened sheep. Its food is grass, lichens, moss, and tender shoots of the willow and pine. It is much sought after for its skin, which makes a fine robe. It is sometimes known as the musk ox, and occasionally as the musk bison. Plant Life the characteristic trees of the mid-Pleistocene period were evergreen. Of these, the most abundant forms were the spruce, the fir, and the yew tree. The trees which shed their foliage were represented by the oak and the birch. The banks of rivers were shaded by thickets of laurel and by the sloe, the original form of the wild plum tree. The marshes afforded rich pastures for grass-eating animals, as well as hiding places, for they were partly covered by a heavy growth of alders. Wild peas, beans, stringy-rooted carrots, rutabagas, and turnips grew on the hillsides. The cabbage, with its thick leaves, which had not yet developed into a head, was present. Seeds of grasses were available, but not used, for man had not yet learned to gather them and convert them into nourishing food. The teacher may be interested in referring to Candles, Origin of Cultivated Plants, and Darwin's Plants and Animals Under Domestication. End of section. This recording is in the public domain.